0: message this morning. We're taking a quick detour from the book of John. So those of you that like verse-by-verse teaching, we're going to come back to that in a few weeks. But we're taking a quick topical detour out of the book of John. And the reason we're doing that is we want to look at clarity in a couple of areas. We want to look at clarity in the gospel message, and we want to look at clarity in the biblical response to the gospel message. We believe the Bible gives one Required response, one prerequisite to go to heaven, and that's faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. That's the prerequisite. That's the biblical response. We put on our little QRQC code, we put a handout for you if you want to look at those hundred and sixty verses in the New Testament that give faith as the only prerequisite to be saved. And it makes sense when we look at the gospel, which we'll do in more detail this morning. Now why did we do this? Why did we jump out of John? Well, because we had just finished the conversation with Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman, two people at the exact opposite ends of the social spectrum, held to different religious beliefs, but it was incredible the overlap in what they actually believed. It was, it was insane. Little bit different detail, but incredible overlap. And last week, or the last time we met, we looked at religion's salvation checklist. They're always, most people are going to throw Jesus in there. Because if you don't throw Jesus in, that turns everybody's eyes off, which, by the way, it should create a discerning spirit in us that when someone just says Jesus, it doesn't mean we accept them wholeheartedly as preaching the same thing that we preach or believing the same thing that we preach. I, I find that a lot. Something happens in our in our culture, and someone slaps the name of Jesus in, and we're like, yeah, this is the greatest thing ever. How do we know that? They could just be slapping it on the backside of of a couple of mules, you know, like, like complete dogs doctrinally, which some of these baby faithful endure to the end. You're going to notice that religion salvation checklist always puts the focus on what you must do and what you must continue to do to be saved. See, God's got a better message than that. It's called the gospel message. It's about what God's already done. You see, religion can't even function in the right time zone. Religion is always in the present And in the future, what you must do, what you must continue to do, God's gospel message is focusing on an event in human history that happened in the past where he did something incredible, not what you must do and continue to do. And so we're making that clarity. And last time, as just a quick review, the gospel message is an objective, verifiable, historical message based on facts which happen on a day in human history. And again, God is focused on that day if your salvation is in any way based on how you will behave 20 years from now, you're focused on the wrong day. You're focused on a different day than God the Father's focused on. He was satisfied 2,000 years ago. And we know that because he raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus knew that what he was doing on the cross that day accomplished the very payment that God required for sin because he screamed from the top of his lungs as he breathed his last breath. You imagine the the the, the bodily strain that he put in. You know, when you're crucified, that's how you die is, a, is asphyxiation. You can't breathe. And you imagine Jesus, the importance of this last word. He pushes up on the nails in his wrist. He pushes up on the nails in his feet. He gets a full breath and he says, it is finished. He wanted us to know that that payment has been made in full. That didn't happen tomorrow. That's not going to happen 30 years ago. In fact, the sins that he bore 2,000 years ago paid the penalty for the sins that I'll commit in 30 years. Because when he died for my sins, he died for all of them. Now, It is fascinating that even the average person in America knows that. I have never in my life talked to a person where I've asked them the question, have you heard of Jesus, that Jesus died for your sins? They say yes. And I have never heard this answer to this next question. How many of your sins did he die for? Everyone that I've ever talked to on planet Earth says all. They don't say some. They don't say, well, everything until I got saved. And then after that, I got to take care of it on my own. Everyone understands the value of the finished work of Christ. They've just never had it fleshed out. So I ask him, what about the sin you will commit two years from now? If he died for all of them, did he die for that one? Yes. What about the big whopper sin? Right? Burger King, have it your way. The big whopper sin somewhere out there that you might commit. Did he die for that one too? Yes. What about when you turn 70? What about those sins? Yes, if he died for all of them, he died for all of them. And if the payment's been made in full, guess what's left for you to pay? You don't even have to throw a tip on the table. He covered it all. That's the message of the gospel. This is the event that we're looking to. Now, this gospel is explained in 1 Corinthians 15. We spent time there last time. I'm gonna go through it quickly, but it involves the right. The right person is Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man. We talked about the significance of that. Had to be fully man because he had to die. That was the penalty for our sin. But because he's fully God, that death can have infinite application to whoever will believe in him. That's our sins and rose again. We should be able to share the gospel with someone in a sentence or less. It's not, well, hey, you gotta come to church. Hey, you gotta meet my pastor. Hey, I want you to do this. Hey, I want you, no. No. Jesus died for your sins and rose again. Is that something we can share? Is that something we can communicate? It's a simple message. It's a very simple message, and this is how God designed it. Now, why, was, why did we have the need for the gospel? Why did Jesus come? You know, um, many people don't understand that. They know Jesus died, but it, it's kind of like right up there with the fact that You know, who's the guy that just bought, uh, Elon Musk bought Twitter. I mean, it's like an, oh yeah, it's informational, but it kind of goes in the pile of, oh yeah, I've always heard that. It's a historical fact. You know, George Washington was the first president. Jesus died for our sins, kind of on the same level. But but the significance of it, the need is because we had this issue that we're facing. In fact, we've got a two-fold problem, just summarizing it. We have a debt we cannot pay, which is a death penalty. The wages of sin is death. If God were to give us what we earned or deserved, we would all deserve death and hell. How about that for a positive message? I mean, that's a negative message. <laughs> but it's the truth. You know, do you want a, you want a doctor when you, when you have stage four cancer to say, oh, no, man, bro, you're doing great. Have a good, you know, enjoy. No, you want him to be honest, even if he's got bad news. Because then you can address it. And see, this twofold problem also includes the fact that we don't possess a righteousness equal to God's righteousness. And we need that to get into heaven. God's not gonna grade on a curve. We need to understand the seriousness. It's perilous. It's too much to handle. It's above our pay grade, if you, if you wanna say it that way, to provide a solution. We cannot provide a solution to these problems. And hence, the only solution is what Christ accomplished. This is God's solution. He did something miraculous to convince you that it was, it was his solution. We celebrated that last week. We celebrated today. We don't have to just leave that last week, right? He raised him from the dead. Something miraculous to tell you that he accepted his work on our behalf. And because this is so perilous, this situation, so overwhelming, God is not expecting you to do something, not expecting you to contribute to what Jesus Christ did. Trust in what Jesus did for you. Just like when, if you've ever been drowning and you trusted in a lifeguard to save you. They, They say oftentimes in lifeguard training, I've never been a lifeguard. I can't swim very well. I can doggy paddle to the side. That's about as good as I can do. But they often say in lifeguard training, don't save them until they quit trying. Because if you get in there too quick, they'll take you under with them. They'll drown you with them. And so you wait for them to swallow a little water before you dive in and go get them. And the reason for that is at that point, they realize the perilousness of their situation. They realize they can't save themselves, and they are willing to look away from their flailing arms and their flailing legs and their lungs that are now filling up with water to someone who will drag them out of the problem. And that's exactly the same concept in the gospel. It's not about more good works. It's not about better behavior. It's not about how we saw one evangelical well-known evangelical author and pastor communicate in a quote I shared last week, it's not a covenant of obedience where God plans to save you if you promise to obey him. That is a barter exchange that is so foreign to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, what a slap to the face of Jesus Christ to say, I can actually contribute in any way. That is a slap to his face. It's not a covenant of obedience. It's not committing to live the Christian life better. In fact, the Christian life is something totally distinct from being born into the family. We're talking about birth issues when we talk about the gospel. How How are you born into the family? Not how do you live after you're already a part of the family. That's a whole different discussion from what we're kind of honing in on this morning. And so the response of faith is simply taking God at his word and believing what he did for us, again, we're talking about a birth issue, not a behavior issue. Many people mash and mix and try to cram these two things together. And then it gets muddy and confusing because if Jesus paid it all, but I still have to obey, how does that work? Go out to lunch with a friend, hey, I'm going to pick up your lunch. The church, we're like, oh yeah, this makes sense. Let me retweet this. This is so deep. No, it, oftentimes it's very foolish <laughs> what's being said because it doesn't even make logical sense. And one of the reasons that uh, Satan wants to distract, and I think Satan is not very creative. When you look at religion, when you look at cults, when you look at where evangelicals get distracted, it is insane how it all tends to overlap. You must do something or continue to do something to be saved. It all comes back to there. It's insane. Because I'm convinced that Satan, if he can distract us from one thing, if he only had one thing, that he wants to distract you of. He wants you to be unconvinced that when Jesus died for your sins, he paid your penalty in full. He wants you to be convinced that there's still something left because that fits with our natural human nature because we all think there ain't no such thing as a free lunch. You get the call tomorrow from a telemarker, Mr. Clark, how thin free? And we naturally think that way and then we bring that same thinking to the bible let me tell you there is one thing completely free in life and it's the most valuable thing that ever existed in the history of humankind it's salvation it's eternal life that's what's free and it doesn't make it cheap cheap is something totally different cheap is me throwing my two cents in somebody else covering most of the cost that's cheap salvation is not cheap it's costly because he paid it all. He can offer it to you for free. That's the distinction that we're making about Jesus Christ. And once again, it is finished. So, what we're going to look at this morning is we want to look at some false biblical responses that are very common in our day. In fact, this is one of those times I've, I've just got to like pre-apologize. I don't, I really do, do not want to step on anybody's toes. I will just say this. Let me, maybe I can throw myself into the, into the pot with you here. Everything that I'm going to say we shouldn't say, because it's not biblical, I've said before, okay? I'm guilty of these things. This is why I, I think I'm so passionate about this concept, because what I've started to see is how these responses, although very common in Christianity, actually draw the spotlight away from Jesus Christ. And the older I get, as we sing about in our songs, and as many of you believe too, I just want my life to bring him glory. I wanna stop distracting people from Jesus Christ. I wanna put the spotlight there. And I, and I think that's enough, honestly. And so this is what I believe the Bible wants us to do is to keep the spotlight on Jesus Christ. This is what I think religion wants to do. Put the spotlight anywhere else. Just bump the spotlight a little bit. You know, in fact, if you were attending a theater play and the, the, the house lights came down on the spoff of the main character, we would be like, what? No, everyone would be looking back to the lighting room. Like, what's going on? Keep the spotlight where it goes. In fact, the person that bumped that spotlight would probably lose their job unless they're a volunteer because they, they move the spotlight at the wrong time. We want to keep the spotlight on Jesus Christ. When we share the gospel, when we share the biblical response to the gospel, what you're going to see is the only biblical response to the gospel is faith, and faith is looking at the one in the spotlight. That's the response. It's not even about us. We're actually looking away from us to the one who died for us and rose again. And so this is always just kind of curious to me, this this phrase, trust in Jesus, period, which is the way it should be. Many people want to cross out that period. And they want to bounce in a comma. And want say, yeah, yeah, trust in Jesus. For sure do that. And fill in the blank. Yeah, you want to trust in Jesus, but... You see what I mean? The spotlight is, has been moved from what he accomplished 2,000 years ago, and it's being bumped into the present, what you must do, or into the future, what you must continue to do. And this is why I love... What one evangelist uh, by the name of Larry Moyer stole this from him. I just think it's a great description. Three types of people in the world. You fit in one of those three circles. Even as you sit here this morning, each one of us fits in one of those three circles. The first circle, W on the left, means that you believe you're getting to heaven based on your works. Your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. You're gonna get in. That's your mindset. And if that's the case, then your view toward the work of Jesus Christ is it was completely unnecessary. because It's all about you and what you gotta do. You can pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get it done. The middle circle is Christ plus works. Oh, I like Jesus, but I think you still got to do something. I like Jesus, but if you, if you live in habitual sin, right? Again, our focus goes to the present and the future. Then you're not really disappointing. He, $18 in their wallet. Well, here, I'll give 18. Can you pick up the other two? Well, I was like, man, this dude told me he was going to pay for my lunch. <laughs> now I'm, coming out of my pocket. With this, it's a little bit disappointing. I mean, still like him. I mean, he covered $18 worth. But he's a little bit disappointing to you that we would all fall in the third category, and that's Christ alone. Because when you look at Christ alone, what you are doing when you look at his work is you're saying, you know what? I'm satisfied with what he did. And the reason I'm satisfied is because I'm convinced God the Father is satisfied. And so I'm just trusting in what Christ did. And so we want to keep the spotlight on Jesus Christ. This morning, And so, again, I say all that as an introduction to looking at what the gospel response is not. And we're going to see how all of these gospel responses in some way bump the spotlight off of Jesus Christ, even unwittingly. I mean, they sound good. They sound, I mean, they sound religious, (laughs) some of them. But they bump the spotlight off of Jesus and his finished work. And so we want to obviously avoid that. The first one we're going to look at this morning, and I think we can move quickly through this one, is as many of you have probably heard, maybe, maybe some of you have used. I have used this one in the past. I shy away from it now because I don't think it's biblical. And it's this idea that in order to get saved, you've got to give your heart or you've got to give your life to Christ, okay? Give your heart or give your life to Christ. And the question is, uh, it, with this cliche, is who's giving what to whom? Who in, in salvation, who's actually the giver and who's the receiver? You know, you start to to think about how this thing works, and so the message of the gospel is not that we give something to God in return of salvation for salvation. In fact, if there's if salvation's uh, obtained in an exchange of any type, an exchange, a, a barter, uh, a commitment, it's it's not a free gift. It's something that's bargained for. In fact, this this cliche does damage to biblical doctrine. Actually, when we start looking at what things are saying. We've got to take things at face value. Eternal life is eternal life. A gift is a gift. Free is free. It's not like one evangelical writer said, salvation's free, but it's going to cost you everything. Now, on what planet, besides planet Earth and the church, does that quote even make sense? Maybe I'm being too hard on the guy. I don't understand that. In fact, if you think that's a good quote, I want to be your your Christmas buddy at Christmas because I got a gift for you and it's going to cost you everything. I, you'd be the best Christmas buddy. I wouldn't have to spend any of my own money. I'd get it all back. It just doesn't make sense. And so we want to take words at face value. Again, consider by, by when exchange happens, it's not a gift. It can't be a gift by definition. We, again, we do damage to the, the wording in, in the English language here. And so, in this sense, salvation from the penalty of sin, and we're talking about birth into the family here. We're not talking about sanctification. That's salvation from the power of sin. We're talking about salvation from the penalty of sin, which is death, clearly defined in the Bible. It's nothing that you can contribute here. It's never a covenant, as some would write. And again, it's not that obedience, by the way. Obedience is not bad, It's not that obedience isn't the desired outcome of being born into the family. It's that obedience doesn't contribute to the payment for the gift that God wants to give you for free because he's paid it in full. There's just a a distinction we're making there. Again, he finished the work. He paid it in full. There's nothing left for you or I to pay. And so what this cliche does is it gets everything backwards. Because this cliche, again, bumps the spotlight off of Jesus Christ and what he gave for you and puts it on you and what you must give to him. So if you're giving your life, your heart, anything else to God, we we're to appear at the pearly gates, right? We were, oh, are this, you appear at the pearly gates, you see the apostle Peter. And Peter says, why should I let you in? And you're like, you're scratching your head like, oh, I got to get this right. You know, I got to get this wording right. And he says, I'll tell you what, I'll give you a multiple choice test. Option number one, is it because you gave your life to Christ? Or option number two, is it because Christ gave his life for you? That simplifies it for me. Number two, number two, number two. <laughs> Thank you, Peter, for the multiple choice test. See, this is what the gospel's about. In fact, you're, you'll never find a verse in the Bible in the context of salvation from the penalty of sin that requires you to give anything. You won't find that in the Bible. And yet we use the phrase, we use that gospel cliche. And again, we're bumping the spotlight. What you will find is many verses like this, Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Ephesians 5.2, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God a sweet-smelling aroma. By the way, when you give your life to Christ, if you subscribe to that, who's getting the glory there? It's like, you, man, good job. Way to give your life to Christ. Man, that was impressive. Your life was impressive. But when Christ, when we realize that we're saved by Christ giving his life for us, who gets the glory? Yes, I'm impressed with Jesus Christ. He, he's the one who gave. I'm simply the receiver, in fact, if we're being very honest with ourselves, the only thing we contributed in the whole salvation process was the problem. That's what we contributed. That's what we gave. We don't don't give the solution. God provides the solution. That brings us to really our next cliche that we want to look at. And it's believe. So they they throw the proper response in there. But they say, you got to believe and confess your sins. They'll they'll say, you got to do both of these things Uh, in order to be saved. Now, this cliche actually is going to start a string of what I would call false gospel response cliches that actually use biblical words and biblical concepts. It's confessed. It's used in the Bible. Is that what we have to do to be saved, though? That's where the rub comes in, and that's where the confusion comes in. And so there's some misunderstandings of this phrase. Let's kind of just introduce this concept for a 2nd Confession of sin, as I mentioned, is a biblical concept, but it's not a requirement for salvation. In fact, a person is not required to confess their sins to be saved. That may shock you because I know if you're anything like me, you're rattling through verses right now. You're like, wait a minute. I think there's a verse over here. And you're thinking through this. We're going to cover some of those verses here this morning, but here's what confuses the matter the most, in my opinion is when people say confess your sins, because there's a lack of clarity, overall clarity around this concept, they will lump other phrases in with this phrase and basically say this is all synonymous. And so they'll lump in with confess your sins that you've got to repent for your sins, which is a cliche we're going to cover in a few weeks. They're going to say that you have to ask for forgiveness. And I'll I'll say this to people, say, well, you got to believe and confess. And I'll say, well, how do you confess your sins? And they say, well, you got you to gotta repent of your sins, and you got to ask for forgiveness. That's how you confess. Here's what's mind-blowing, is if you take the word confess, and you take the word repent, and you take the word ask, and you put them side by side in a parallel column, and you put all of the thesaurus entries of words that are synonyms for those three words, there is no overlap between those three words. We understand that when we're not here that they know that they've done something wrong first. Those are two separate things. Yet when we come to the Bible, we, we mix and mash and, and push these things together. Confessing our sins is not repenting of your sins. It's totally different. Confession of sins is not asking for forgiveness. It's totally different. They don't even, the words don't even mean the same thing. They're not even in the same semantic range of meaning when you look at it linguistically. And so one of the things that we, we've got to see is there's some misunderstandings, and these are common misunderstandings. Let me just go over one. First, misunderstanding. People will teach you must remember and confess all your sins to get saved. And you know that this is absolutely impossible. I'm going to go through a math problem here, and just don't worry. I'll do all the calculation for you. Exactly. We don't even. Many of us don't remember what we had for dinner. And if you remember last night, what did you have two nights ago? We can't even remember that. And yet our eternal destiny would be based on whether or not we could remember all of our sins. That's number one. Number two, have you ever misevaluated something you did in word, thought, or deed and later realized that you were wrong, but at the time you thought you were justified in doing the right thing? We don't even evaluate our sin correctly and accurately. But let's throw all that out. Let's look at some confession math for a second. And so we'll do this equation. Let's assume that each one of us averages three sins per day. Now, some of you I know, and we're giving you a lot of credit there. No, just kidding. But let's just assume it's only three. Okay, let's just assume it's only three per day for all of your life. That would be 1,095 sins per year. And then if you lived until you're 80 years old, it would be over 87,000 sins. That in order for you to go to heaven, you would have to remember, evaluate correctly, and confess whatever that means. We're going to get to that in a second. You see, see how ridiculous when we, you know, they they often tell you. Sometimes when you're looking at ideas um, and you're in a debate, you say you'll tell the other person, "Well, let's take your idea for a walk. Right? Like, <laughs> let's take your idea for a ride, a test drive. Let's see where it ends up." And you could see this concept ends up in an impossibility. No one would be saved if that's how someone got saved. And by the way, if this was how you got saved, would you be trusting in your sin bearer to bear your sins, even the ones that you can't remember? Or would you be trusting in your memory, your own memory, your own ability to evaluate sins correctly? Who, would, who and where would you be trusting in? We'd be trusting in ourselves. Again, the spotlight has been bumped. The spotlight has been taken off of Jesus Christ, even unwittingly, even using what we would consider a biblical concept, confession of sins. And I mentioned this before, but many people lump these phrases together. They're not synonymous. And so the question becomes, what does confession of sin mean? What exactly am I supposed to do? How does that fit biblically? Does it fit into the area of salvation or some other area? Because it is biblical. Well, since the biblical response to the gospel is faith alone, again, we, do, we put that overwhelming evidence, 160 verses, where this is the only uh, required response. Individuals are going to be condemned to the lake of fire, not because they forgot one of the 87,600 sins that they committed in their lifetime. You'll never find that concept in the Bible. But what you will find in the Bible is that people will be condemned to judgment because they've never believed on the sin bearer. They've never trusted in what the sin bearer did. That's why John 3.18, you'll see the word believe three times. You don't see the word confess in there. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And so since confession is a biblical word, let's define it. The meaning of confession is it's a compound word. Uh, two Greek words, homo, lageo. We know homo, or we should, you know, homo, homozygous, homo sapien. It, it just means the same. Two, you know, in science, it's two of the same types of, you know, whatever species. Homo means the same thing, and lageo, which is uh, that that back word, that second word, means to speak. And so, when you put these two words together, and you look at the use of these, this compound word together, it literally means to say the same thing or to agree with. Can you see why that's not asking? You see why that's foreign to being synonymous with asking? I'm saying the same thing about something. I'm not asking for somebody to do something. You see the difference? It's, they're not synonymous, and yet we sometimes cram them altogether. And so a couple of quick clarifying comments on the word confess. Do you know that the word confess contained in the word doesn't require or indicate any kind of emotions? There's nothing emotional in this word. In fact, biblically, using the word how it's used biblically, I could be walking outside this morning with you out the door and say, wow, isn't this a nice day? Isn't this a beautiful day? And if you said it is a beautiful day, guess what? You just confessed. It was a beautiful day. You just said the same thing I did. You agreed with what I said. That's all this word means. This is what confession means. Another clarification the word confess is not a synonym for ask. This is, this is what is so confusing for many people. They'll see the phrase confess your sins, and then they think that means you got to ask for forgiveness. We're going to cover that one next week, Lord willing. It, it, they're not synonymous. We're not, they, these aren't the same things. We've got to understand that built into the word. And then finally, the word confess in and of itself has nothing to do with sin. I just gave an example of a nice day. In fact, when, when your kids disobey you, and I remember, uh, I think I've told this story before, but I think it illustrates it well. You know, if, if you know one of my children, I, in, I'm so bad at remembering like who did what now. They're all like getting off scot-free because I can't remember who did anything wrong, who, who did the wrong thing, who did the right thing. One of my children hit their sibling in the head with a toy truck. And they had to, go to their, they had to go to their room, right? And so I went into their room. We sent them immediately to the room. And I said, now, now you know why you're in here, don't you? And I, can't, I think I know who it is, but I'm not going to name them because I, I probably have it wrong. But they said to me, because you're a mean dad. And I said, nope. I'll be back in 30 minutes. You can try that one again. 30 minutes later, you know why you're in here? Stubborn? No? Don't know why I'm in here. I don't know why I'm in here. Just being mean to me, I guess. Nope. 30 minutes later, finally come in. And they're like, because I hit my sister on the head with the truck. That's exactly what I wanted to hear. You know why? That's confession. Now I understand that they understood why they're in trouble. They said the same thing about the situation that I said. It's wrong to hit your sister with a truck in the head. It's never right to hit your sister in the tr- with a truck in the head, ever. And they confessed that. They agreed with me at that point. That's confession, right? So uh, again, it's, this is the concept that we're talking about. Now, many things come up when we're looking at confession because it's used in the Bible. As I said, turn with me to one passage, one such passage, and we're going to bounce around a little the next few weeks. I'm sorry, I, I usually like to stay in a context. Uh, as well, and just move verse by verse. But we want to kind of uh, tackle some of these passages that cause confusion. So Romans 10, 9 and 10. By the way, we're going to see that multiple false gospel response cliches will cite Romans 10, 9 through 10. It's incredible. So we're going to spend a lot of time on that in a future, future message here in a couple of weeks, because I want to develop that context more in more detail, because I think that helps us with the passage. But for now, we're very familiar with uh, this passage. In fact, if you look at any, any Bible tract, you're going to see probably Romans 10, 9, and 10 on it. Okay, it's a very common um, use. And so it's easy uh, when we read this to see that uh, from the context that sin is not what's being confessed here. All right, so let's just kind of tackle it from this response cliche. Look at Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And so what's being confessed here? What's well, the Lord Jesus, not sin. So technically, we could just stop right there and move on to the next passage, because that's not even the context. So what does this mean, though? Let's, let's kind of walk through this. Well, you're going to see that There in verse 9, he uses the word Lord. He doesn't say confess Jesus. He says confess the Lord Jesus, okay, is the the idea. And this this Greek word is the Greek word, kurios. Now, the word in and of itself has a very generic meaning. In fact, it's used throughout the New Testament. Uh, It's just, you know, it's funny. The translators do us a favor sometimes. They don't capitalize Lord or they don't translate it that way because it would probably confuse us. They'll translate it master or sir something like that. That's the generic meaning of the word. It's generally a title of respect. But based on a couple of things, the the word's use, kurios, which is the Greek word, it's use in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And then Paul's audience here, or who he's trying to persuade here in Romans 10, I believe he was using it as more of a technical term. He's referring to someone specifically. And here's one of those things, you just... You just wouldn't know unless someone told you or you, you happened upon it somewhere because it just is not like right on the surface. But do you know that the, the Greek word kurios is used synonymously with Yahweh in the Old Testament over 8,600 times? And, and that this, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and do you know that the majority of Jews in Paul's day read from the Septuagint? So when they're thinking about the covenant Keeping name of the God of Israel, they're always seeing it in terms of Kurios, 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 Lord, Yahweh. This is how it's translated here, and so when Paul is saying, in fact, one such occurrence is in Deuteronomy six four, right? The the prayer, the Shema that they that they would pray every morning, the Lord our God, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, right? It, it, in the in the Septuagint, it uses Kurios there for Lord twice okay? So this would have been very significant to Paul's audience. So what were they exactly confessing? What were they saying here? I I think it's simply this. Paul's Jewish audience were to agree with God the Father and Paul, because he's the one communicating it, that Jesus was indeed God, Yahweh from the Old Testament. That's what they needed to recognize. And thus, he is qualified to say them. How did the majority of the Jews in Paul's day view Jesus? As a criminal worthy of death, as a deceiver, as somebody who who was just kind of a blight on Jewish human history that they wish never existed. Paul's saying, guys, this was Yahweh. You, You need to agree with God and you need to agree with me. Jesus is Yahweh and thus he's able to save you from your sins. See, they needed to say the same thing. That's the word confess. Say the same thing about Jesus that God the Father says about him. And so that's one passage that's typically brought up. And, and clearly, we could have stopped there when we realized you're not confessing your sin in Romans 10, 9, and 10. It's not even, it's foreign to that passage. But where the phrase is used is in 1 John 1, 9. Let's turn there. And that, that may be of a, a passage that some of you thought of as we were, we were kind of looking at this one. 1 John 1, 9. And um, we're going we're gonna to get to verse 9, but I kind of want to read the lead up to it. So let's start in verse 5. he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Again, the, the question now becomes, the phrase is used, is it describing how somebody saved or is it speaking of something else? And, and to, in order to determine that, we've got to go to the context, right? I, Hopefully this is uh, an understandable way that we would approach uh, any kind of truth in the Bible. We want to kind of gather the context because it helps us understand it uh, a little bit better. You know, it's, it's so amazing, but it's like the Bible's the only book. I mean, it, just imagine if you did this with Gone with the Wind. Read a sentence on page five, turn to page 300, read a sentence, turn to page 700, read a sentence, turn, to, uh, turn back to page 225, read a sentence, and say, All right, I know what the book's about. The people will look at you and think you're crazy. And we do that with the Bible all the time. We do the exact the exact thing we would never do with another book in history. We do it with the Bible. It's insane. And so we'll just rip a verse out of there. We're not even concerned with context. So let's look at context. I think it's very important to understand that. The, the context of the entire chapter of 1 John 1 reveals its, its primary audience. His primary audience are those who are already saved. Now, how do we, how do we know that? Well, He uses the word fellowship four times in chapter one. Fellowship, again, is a family term for those who are already saved. In fact, the scriptures never talk about an unbeliever having fellowship with God. In fact, what does the unbeliever need? They need a relationship with God. And once they have a relationship, then we can talk about fellowship. And so John's focus here in chapter one is fellowship. We also see that throughout the book, John uses the word "brethren," brothers (plural). We don't usually talk that way anymore. And brothers, seventeen times, he's talking to believers. That's why people who approach the book of First John and say these are tests for salvation—they're they're, they're really misunderstanding the whole context of who John is talking to. It's not test for salvation; it's test for fellowship. Maybe you could say it that way, but not test for salvation or relationship. He's calling them brothers. And then I think the biggest argument, notice all the personal plural pronouns. Whoever these people are, John's in the same boat with them. We, us, our. In fact, even in uh, verse 9, it says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful to just and forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If that's a salvation passage, are we to assume that in 90 AD, when John wrote this, some 60 years after Jesus died and ascended, that John, the apostle, still not saved? That he, he still needs to get saved? I, I mean, that's preposterous, right? I mean, that's just a preposterous idea. And so he's clearly talking to believers, and, and so this confession of sin is for someone who's already a believer, who's already in the family of God. It's not a prerequisite to enter the family of God. That's foreign from the, concept, uh, the context here. In fact, what he's encouraging is that when you sin as a believer, and you will, he doesn't say, then you were never saved. You know, that's, that's what a lot of people teach. If you sin or you go on saying, oh, you were never saved, you never had it to begin with. No, he doesn't say that. In fact, He says if, if you have that mindset that somehow you're going to stop sinning or you'll stop sinning so much, look what he, look what he says in verse eight. If we say we have no sin, you're, you're deceived. He's talking to believers there. He's talking about himself there. He includes it. Look at verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. We call God a liar. The point is not if you sin, you're not saved. The point is when you sin and you will, God's got a mechanism to restore fellowship. Don't cover your sin. Don't hide your sin. Don't justify your sin. Don't excuse your sin. Step into the light. Say the same thing about your sin that God says about it and get back into fellowship with the Lord. Christ has already died for you, He's already paid the penalty for you. Why would you hang out in the darkness? Who are you impressing? (laughs) Who are we impressing by covering sin? Trust me, everyone in this room knows that you're a sinner. So when you give them evidence, likewise, they shouldn't be shocked. And it's not about the person next to you anyways. It's about one. You you live life and I live life for an audience of one. Don't ever forget that. That's so important to remember. This God whom we worship who's done everything needed to bring you into eternal life with him not only stop there but he is pursuing you relationally every minute of every day and he longs for intimacy with you more than you long with him and he's a great lover in that way he's a great pursuer because even when you stiff arm him he continues to pursue don't we have a great god isn't he amazing this is the mechanism that he's put in place here and so Simply put, confession of sins is for the believer to restore fellowship with God, not for the unbeliever to enter a relationship with God, to become saved from the penalty of sin. Again, when does this happen? When the believer says the same thing about his or her sin that God says. God, that was wrong. God, I got angry there. God, I I thought thoughts that I shouldn't have thought. I said something, Lord, that was rude. That was sin. Lord, I acted this way toward my wife. I acted this way toward my kids. I acted this way to the person on the phone that I yelled at because they got my bill wrong for the 14th time in 14 months, right? That was sin. I was wrong. I lost my temper, Lord. The moment you do that, God restores you to fellowship. That's the beautiful thing about our God. Now, let me start another one. We won't be able to finish this morning, I would like you to eat lunch today and not just uh, eat dinner tonight. So um, this is a big one. By the way, is prayer a bad thing? No, prayer's not a bad thing at all. But when we talk about the biblical response to the gospel, this is a very, very popular uh, cliche. And you know what? It's not biblical. (laughs) That's what's incredible. In fact, do you think praying the sinner's prayer is the same thing that believing that Jesus died for you 2,000 years ago, it's not the same thing. I mean, prayer can communicate that you're trusting in Christ, for sure. But in and of itself, it's not the same thing. Now, now bear with me here, because I know this one, I'm going to step on some toes, because I, I think we've all grown up with this in somewhat. Every Christian tract, pr- practically, we've read has a sinner's prayer in it. So we're very comfortable with this concept, generally speaking. And um, what's really fascinating about this is when you look at the Bible, do you know that there's absolutely no instance of another person leading someone in prayer to be saved in the entire Bible? And 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 if you're questioning that, take a look this week and let me know if you find one, okay? Not only that, there's not even an instance of someone praying to get saved in the Bible, an example of that. When you look at someone praying to be saved in Acts chapter 10, if you remember the story of Cornelius, how did God answer his prayer? Did he save him when he prayed or gave him a vision? No, he sent Peter to share the gospel. That's, that was the answer to his prayer. He sent someone to share the gospel so that he might what? Not pray a prayer, but believe on the one who died for him and rose again. That was the issue there. By the way, have you ever read, just as a curiosity, have you ever read a sinner's prayer that's exactly the same as another sinner's prayer? Have you ever seen two that are exactly alike? There, there's an evangelistic organization which will remain nameless. I, I have four different tracks by this evangelistic organization. They all have a sinner's prayer in the back four. And even in their own organization, it's not the same sinner's prayer. Different wording all over the place. And I'm just, I, I mean, if that's what I'm going to base my eternity on, saying the right words, I better have it word for word. I don't want anything messed up there. And so it's just amazing. We don't we don't even think of this way in terms of producing a verse to justify this biblical response for someone to get saved. In fact, would it surprise you to know too that the presence of the sinner's prayer in church history is not even there until the 20th century. Can't find it anywhere. Can't find it in writings. Can't find it in books. Can't find it in autobiographies. Can't find it in testimonies until the 20th century. Now, if you don't include a sinner's prayer, you're almost accused of spiritual, you know, malevolency, like, you don't, you, oh, you don't want people to be saved. I remember a, a friend of mine attended a men's retreat, and a, the speaker who was, was trained at Dallas Seminary, which we would say is, you know, I would hope we would say it's a reputable um, seminary, and, and he was sharing how he had prayed the prayer or something to that effect, and my friend said, what, what verse would you go to in the Bible to, to prove that? I said, well, I don't need to go to the verse. I'm I just, you know, I don't, I don't need a verse. I just do it. And then the guy finally got frustrated with my friend. He says, well, let me ask you this. If you don't pray a prayer, then how do you get saved? And my friend's like, that's a great question. <laughs> he said, you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, that's the biblical response. So it's not that we don't want people to pray. It's just that we want to be biblical. Again, I think when you pray the prayer, it bumps the spotlight. In fact, I challenge you to talk to somebody who's saved who thinks they got saved this way, and ask them this question. Are you saved? Yes. When did you get saved? X and such date. How did you get saved? I prayed the prayer. What are, who or what are they trusting in? <laughs> I mean, they might have trusted in Christ. That's, that's great if they did. But the mindset of where they're at today is I got saved by repeating the words of a pastor or repeating the words of an evangelist. That's how I got saved. What would I much rather say for for all of us, or be encouraged to say, how do you know you're saved? Or how did you get saved? Jesus died for my sins and rose again. See how the spotlight just stays there? When we, I believe that Jesus died for my sins, even if we include our response, the spotlight stays on Jesus Christ. And I don't pray in the prayer. By the way, if anyone in here has prayed the prayer, I did growing up. I almost did it every week. And if I sinned really bad, I almost did it every night, you know, because I was like, I don't want to chance this going to bed thing, you know, and dying uh, and going to hell. But isn't it fascinating that these false gospel response cliches you often repeat more than once? Isn't that something? And when you put your faith in Christ, you know what you realize? The work's already been done. So you rest. You don't do that more than once. But these kind of false gospel uh, response cliches kind of promote that the biblical response to the gospel is not praying a prayer, walking an aisle. It's faith alone in the finished work of Christ alone. So again, we're not asking God to do something for us in the present. And we, we need to, our focus, especially as it relates to being born in the family, needs to remain in the past. We need to focus on an event that happened that God accomplished in the past, not what he's gonna do in the present. Now, we're out of time. We're gonna pick up there next week and we're going to look at two passages, because I, I don't want you to think that we're not going to consider some passages. I'll tell you what we're going to consider. And if you got something else to, to put before me before next week, this is the time. You can do that, and and we'll and I'll kind of look at that as well. Luke 18, 9 through 14. You can just jot that down. Luke 18, 9 through 14. This is the, the prayer of the Pharisee and in the, in the um, tax collector. And then we're going to Look at Romans ten thirteen. those who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so we'll look at those two passages next week. Let's close there with a word of prayer. Lord, it is our heart's desire not to appear or to be critical. That is not the goal at all. The goal is to exalt you in such a way that you receive the due honor and glory for what you accomplished. And that's what we want to do, Lord, and we want to keep the spotlight on you. want to keep the spotlight on your accomplishment. We want to simply rejoice in our thinking day to day and what you accomplished for us. And yes, Lord, we are not worthy of that. We declare that till the day we die. We will declare that into eternity. And that's what makes what you did so much more impressive. We did not deserve it. And yet, because of your love, you have determined to bestow blessing and a free gift to us on the basis of your grace, meaning we never earn or deserve it. And it's all based on what your son accomplished for us. We're so grateful for Jesus. We sang that song. We thank you, Jesus, for the blood you shed. We're thankful for the work that you accomplished by dying for our sins and rising again. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.